0: Said that there was there were children who witnessed this, and I can't imagine uh, what they just went through. Was this a large like was there like a crowd of people where these shots were fired, or was it more of a back room? No, it's
1: a it's a big rural location, um, so people are working. It's spread out. There's people that live at the location as well. So um, you know, it's it it was in in the afternoon when kids were out of school and for children to witnesses is, is unspeakable.
2: Sheriff, what's next for this investigation? Do you need a warrant to further search the car? Uh,
1: we're working with the district attorney's office um, and uh, we have a collaborative investigation and um, I have all the confidence that um, together we will get to the bottom of this and be able to provide a motive. Um, he is in custody and um, my understanding, he's fully cooperating with us.
3: Any comment on this happening right after the
1: Monterey Park out? Yeah, it's tragic uh, wherever this would happen, um, especially here in our county. Um, it's a tragedy that you know we we see on the news a lot, uh, but when it hits home, working in this community myself, um, what a tragedy to see these innocent people lose their lives. And right now, we just don't have the answers yet.
0: Did the suspect live? here locally, does he have family members here?
1: Half Moon Bay resident, um, and we believe that he may have a spouse. Do you know the
4: name of the
1: officer who apprehended him who
5: made that identification? Um, yeah, Deputy Peruk. Yeah. Deputy
1: uh Deputy, his name is Deputy La Peruk. I can get you the spelling of that. So,
5: wait, the the name one more time? His,
1: uh, Deputy La Peruk? La Peruk. He's the one that located the vehicle with the suspect inside of it at the substation.
6: What sort of assistance are federal authorities providing at this moment?
1: Uh, the FBI at, at the scene. The FBI um, was ready to, you know, deploy all the resources that that we don't have here at the local level. Um, and I've, I've been getting calls from even across the country um, from sheriffs. Um, from Congress, people in Congress, senators, uh, very supportive. And, you know, I'd like to also thank um, our county executive, Mike Callagy, for his support and the board support.
7: Is it clear that his possession of uh, the weapon that was found, uh, was that a legal weapon to have? Did that violate any local laws? Yeah, we still,
1: I still don't, I can't release that information yet.
7: Uh, Does the suspect suspect
1: have any criminal history, any part of criminal history? Yeah. Well, that I can't. It's still because it's an active investigation. We can't release that yet.
0: Do you know how long that, that he was here for, or even how long he was at those different locations, one to the next, and then just got here? I don't know how long he had been sitting out here.
1: Yeah, we we don't have that. We're still ga- gaining that information. Okay. Well,
8: well, close or, uh, to the two locations to each other? Did he have to do the shooting, get in his car, drive to another yes. location? Yes,
1: he, he he drove, drove to the location. How yeah. Close uh they're not very not very far maybe a mile away from each other. Are they all the same, um, that I don't know.
6: Is there any concern that there might be more than these two locations and can you confirm whether or not these
7: uh, both of the shootings happened outdoors?
1: Um we are still it's because it's an active investigation I I can't uh go into that but as soon as we are able to provide you with more information um we will Um, What I would like to say is that um, at the IDS Hall, there is a family reunification center um, for uh, the coastal community um, and uh, members of of the uh, the, uh, nurseries, and um, that'll be open. And if anyone has any additional information that may know more about um, this investigation, they can contact the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office. Can, Can you reconfirm the
8: addresses of both locations and the order in which you
1: um, I can give you the addresses, um, just one moment.
3: So you're not sure exactly where he went first?
1: That is still part of the investigation, yes.
3: Okay, one more question, please. Have you, I'm Sheriff, have
0: I'm you sorry. personally talked with any of the victims' family members?
1: Uh, not yet. Um, we're waiting to ID the victims and then, um, but we will be in touch with them. Um, do you want to say we all need to heal. Um, as the supervisors have said, um, this community has been through a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks, and now for this to happen, um, you know, together we're stronger, and we will heal together. Um, and I want to thank the community for all their support. Um, but again, if anyone um, has any other questions, we'll 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 circle back, and as soon as we're able to give you more information.
5: Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. That's good. Thank you.
9: Good evening, Uh, everyone.
10: I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. You've been listening to a press conference from Half Moon Bay, California, where a suspect is now in custody after a shooting that killed at least seven people at multiple locations. At least one person is critically injured. The motive? Currently unknown, but police have ID'd the suspect as a 67-year-old Half Moon Bay resident who's believed to have acted alone. I want to go right now to CNN's Camilla Bernal. Camilla, uh, yet another mass shooting. And most people might think, well, are we talking about the shooting in Monterey Bay Park? No, this is a different shooting in California this evening. Seven lives claimed. Another person in critical condition. What are we learning right now?
6: So authorities are saying that this all happened at around 222 local time here in California. And what they say is that this shooter went to the first location. We believe it is a mushroom farm, but authorities are calling it a nursery. So this man went to uh, the nursery and shot at least four people or killed at least four people. It appears he shot a fifth person. That person is believed to be in critical condition. They did not find him immediately. Then he went to another location and authorities are saying it was just about a mile away. Again, a nursery. That is how they're describing it. And there he shot three more people. And of course, uh, then we were still without a suspect for a period of time. It was around 4.30 p.m. local time when this 67-year-old male apparently went to the sheriff's substation. And it appears that he was going to turn himself in, but it was a sheriff deputy that saw him in his car because they already knew what car he was in. And so this deputy was able to arrest the 67-year-old half moon bay resident he was taken into custody we know that the da is working on interviewing him at the moment they're trying to figure out exactly how this happened and why it happened but as you mentioned authorities saying that they do not have a motive at this moment they believe he was an employee at one of these nurseries they believe that the people that were killed were also workers at the farm or the nursery however you want to call it Uh, but we know that these families are being notified being told told, you know, their loved one is no longer with us. Again, seven people, one in critical condition. Governor Gavin Newsom tweeting that he was meeting the victims of one shooting here in Southern California when he got pulled away to be briefed on this other shooting. So what the governor was saying is tragedy upon tragedy. That is what we're hearing tonight. And again, seven people who are dead at the moment. We have a video of that suspect when he was taken into custody um, at the sheriff's substation. Again, he is being interviewed by authorities now, but the motive is unknown, Laura. I mean, Camilla, and just um I'm I'm glad you've clarified, at least in part, one
10: thing, that many people were watching that press conference and they heard nursery. And obviously everyone's knee-jerk reaction is to think about children, babies, infants, and so any loss of life, don't get me wrong, unbelievable to think about. But the idea that they're talking about a synonymous term of an agricultural community with a farm and the mushroom growing nursery as part of what has been clarified. But that does not mean that there were not children on the scene We learned that there actually, there were kids who were on the scene. What do you know about that?
6: Yes. So authorities were asked about this and they did say that it was unfortunate and heartbreaking for children to witness this. What they were saying is that this is an agricultural area. People live there. People work in that area. So it appears that there were witnesses there at the scene and it may include children. Of course, the authorities that were at the press conference all saying that they were heartbroken, saying that it is just unbelievable because they did not expect this in their community. But that's what you hear everywhere, unfortunately. You don't expect it. And then you have authorities and members of the community saying, you know, how could this have happened here? They're trying to get to the bottom of that, but at the moment, they just don't know why.
10: And we're hearing from that press conference from the sheriff's office that he, the suspect, acted alone They were talking about a semi-automatic weapon. They were not clear whether the weapon was legally purchased or otherwise. There were the two separate locations, multiple people who had been gunned down. One was in critical condition. That may be an eighth person who was impacted. And they are looking at this point for a warrant of some kind to be able to search the car that that suspect came in to that police station. And and yet this is after having happened of another mass shooting in the state of California. Camilla, stand by because I want to turn now to California State Senator Josh Becker, who represents San Mateo County, where this shooting took place. State Senator Josh Becker, thank you for joining us. I have to tell you, you must be stunned along with everyone in your community. The idea that it has happened there now while people are covering a story in California of another mass shooting and it's happened there. What can you tell us about this area, in particular Half Moon Bay and and what has happened here?
11: Well, a lot of people think of Half Moon Bay as a beaches, as a vacation spot, but it's quite a significant and vibrant agricultural community. Just a few miles south of San Francisco, we have almost a hundred farms, we have a few thousand farm workers, and it's a very close-knit community. So this is going to be absolutely devastating to that community.
10: What do we know in terms of, we're hearing from the sheriff, and of course I know you would know firsthand as well, this is a community that has already been devastated recently from the flooding, from different natural disasters as well. This mm. this is a second tragedy, albeit a different one, that's impacted in a short amount of time.
11: Yeah, absolutely. As you said, we're just recovering I've been a couple times touring the coast, seeing the damages to uh, the farms there and then farm workers being out of work uh, because of that. And, and then now you have this. And, and as you said, I mean, it's just you always think it's not going to happen in your community. Uh, we pride ourselves in California as having some of the toughest gun laws in the country. But I got to tell you, those don't matter a bit when there's seven people dead in your own community, when there's 10, 11 people dead in Monterey Park. It just it doesn't matter one bit.
10: So what are you being briefed on in terms of what we know about this suspect, anything regarding the motive? And I always am cautious because I don't want anyone to think that when we search for a motive, a justification is what we're seeking. But in order to understand perhaps in deterrence or even to understand this irrational tragedy, have you been briefed at all about what might have caused this person to act in this way, this suspect?
11: Well, I'm in close touch with our wonderful new sheriff, who you just heard from, and following closely with the investigation uh, with her and her team, I have tremendous confidence in the sheriff and her team. So she's really uh, leading that. We do not have a motive um, at the moment um, that I know of. Um, Of course, the the shootings did occur at two uh, different locations. Uh, It was the same shooter. And, um, but in terms of the motive itself, right at this moment, we, we don't know.
10: As you mentioned, California has prided itself and frankly is among one of the strictest states on gun control measures. When you look at what's happened in really two days period, as many mass shootings over as many days, what do you think could stop the gun violence? I mean, obviously, it looks to be perhaps different scenarios, obviously not connected in any way that we can see at this moment in time. As a legislature, legislature and as legislator, what can be done?
11: Well, i got to tell you, so we, we literally just had a uh, memorial and vigil in the Capitol because of the killings in Monterey Park. And there's a text flying around with my colleagues, um, especially again after this horrific shooting today, about exactly that question. What more Uh, can we do? And we're looking at every aspect from uh, first when people buy a gun and uh, that process and questions you're asked and the background checks uh, to how people store guns and to uh, red flag laws. Of course, we led the nation in red flag laws, which are now spreading across the country, fortunately. But they're enforced unevenly. Education is uneven. And we have to really work, this all operationalizes at the local level. So we have to keep working with local, uh, local police on enforcing those red flag laws. So we're looking at every aspect of those to the guns themselves, to micro tracing bullets, everything that's looking at accountability in the process um, are things that we are looking at, at right now. As you said, again, we do have some of the toughest gun laws. Our statistics are a lot better than the rest of the country. Um, but again, that just, you know, to me, it doesn't mean anything right now with these deaths today.
10: I mean, these families, who it just means, are,
11: it means it means we got to do. Yeah, I would say it means we got to do more. That's all I, I say. I
10: didn't mean to cut you off, but I was thinking about the families, Senator. And, and as you have said, I want to just echo the idea that we can talk about policy and legislation and all the things that should happen on Capitol Hill or individual state capitals. Right now, there are families gathering at these agricultural farming based nurseries waiting to get word of their loved ones um, as to what's happened and make sense of this tragedy. And according, you mentioned the idea of red flag laws in particular. This is a part of a growing conversation about how law enforcement can coordinate with individual families to get the voluntary surrender of weapons that might be used to harm. But it also requires a bit of imminent danger that's presented to a judge. It requires due process in the end to have that full and final hearing. Final question for you. I do wonder, do you know about the coordination that must be taking place? I heard the sheriff mention the FBI um, being in place and elected officials trying to help in the reinforcement of addressing this particular tragedy. Has there been coordination between different entities to give the support to San Mateo County that they need?
11: Yes, there has been coordination. I was in, uh, the governor texted me uh, just uh, you know an hour or so ago. You know, it's ironic here. I just retweeted his tweet about how the uh, the the U.S. is about I think 28 times um, more likely to have gun violence, 28 times more deaths per capita than our peer countries. And I just retweeted that after the last tragedy, and then we had mm. uh, this tragedy. But he's reached out, offered his services. The FBI, as you mentioned, uh, are involved. So. Um, Right now, we've got a full complement of folks um, working on this case. And then the next part is really just to help the residents get through the trauma of all this.
10: State Senator Josh Becker, thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, truly, the nation's can't catch its breath shooting after shooting, while family members of loved ones who work at those nurseries and those of the Monterey um, Park Area as well are trying to and holding their breath to figure out what's happened to their own loved ones. Two mass shootings now in California in as many days, a deadly school shooting in Des Moines, 38 mass shootings in three weeks across this country. And now the front lines are everywhere. So when we started planning our show today, we needed to be reporting on the horrific massacre in one city, in Monterey Park, California. What we didn't know was that we'd also have to tell you about another shooting in California, this one in a community called Half Moon Bay. We also didn't know that we would had to tell you about the shooting in Iowa this afternoon at an educational program for at-risk youth in Des Moines that left two students dead and the program's founder seriously injured. I want to bring in CNN Law Enforcement Analyst Michael Fanone and Defense Attorney and former Prosecutor Shan Wu. Also, our CNN Law Enforcement Analyst Charles Ramsey is with us here today. Let me begin with with you, Charles, since you are away from us for a moment and just ask, I mean, the fact that we are not even able to keep pace just in the, the, the neck break pace of mass shootings or shootings in general in this country, what is your reaction to this gun violence?
12: Well, you know, my fear is that people are getting desensitized to this. I mean, you know, it's just one right after the other. I mean, we're talking about this because these are mass shootings, so it tends to get the attention of media and so forth. But this kind of carnage takes place on streets of our city across the country every single day. And, you know, a lot of times it's not even reported on. uh, It's certainly not nationally, just, just locally. So, Uh, Gun violence is something that we've become too accustomed to and too accepting, uh, and it's just got to stop. But it is not going to stop, unfortunately. Uh, We just don't know when and where the next one's going to happen, but it will happen.
10: Michael Fanon and um, Sham, we're with me here in studio. Let me ask you, when you hear that from um, a a member of law enforcement, a commissioner and a police chief, what goes through your mind about the ability to prevent this? Obviously, law enforcement's role has to, on the one hand, be reactive to crimes, but on the other hand, trying to be proactive as a deterrence measure. Is there a way to stop this?
13: I don't think there's any one uh, law or any set of laws, really, that, um, you know, is going to put a stop to this problem completely. And that's not to uh, relieve legislators of their responsibilities to, um, you know, try to find a way. Uh, That being said, I I think it's uh, it's two part. I think that you have to. uh, Be aggressive in pursuing uh, criminal charges against individuals like this, using the laws that we have on the books now, uh, while we're also seeking out new new laws um, and prosecuting individuals that uh, participate in crimes involving firearms.
10: Yeah, You're nodding along, Shannon, the idea of thinking about, obviously, the prosecutorial function here. Right. And, you know, to be quite blunt, we've had a number of mass shootings, let alone shootings, where, you know, as a community, as a nation, we have to sort of throw up our hands because you can't prosecute the suspect who is dead. Right. There has not been somebody, and often cases where the person has survived their attack, They have behaved in a manner to um, then commit suicide, it seems, in many instances. We've had now just this last one. We're hearing about a suspect who is now in custody. I wonder from the prosecutorial function of this, cases like this, is there a way that prosecutors and prosecution more broadly can help?
0: Well, I think one thing, to Michael's point about using the laws in the books, I think it's really important for prosecutors as well as law enforcement not to rule out things too quickly, such as hate crime charges. A lot of times people associate, if it's the suspect, is the same race as the victim, same gender, no hate crime charge possible, but it's too early to tell that, and we mustn't fall into that sort of stereotypical knee-jerk reaction to it. As a prosecutor, in a case like this, where there is a suspect, they're alive, they're going to be prosecuted, you're thinking about charges, uh, hate crimes charges, gun charges, Also, other people who might have been in danger, not just the victims who were killed, but people who were wounded. Or even, in this case, if there are children around, perhaps endangering the children as well. So you're looking at it from the point of view of those immediate charges. In terms of the big picture, prevention, I think one thing we can do as a country is to be less reactive. I mean, you have to be reactive here. Mm. But in terms of how can you prevent things in the future, using all the laws that are in the books, thinking of new ones... But also, particularly in the new ones, passing some basic common sense gun laws would be one thing you could be doing right now. And that's something that has to be done. That's not going to solve everything. It's not going to prevent every gun shooting, but it's something that can be done. And rather than always being so reactive, saying, oh, this one was due to this, this one's due to that, it's a mental health issue. Sure, there are lots of mental health issues. They need to be addressed but you can't sort of just be doing one thing at a time. You have to press forward because it's not just a reactive situation.
10: You know, yeah. it's a great point on that. I you to in because it, it's all it's we know the cyclical nature, unfortunately, of how accustomed we are. And as Charles Ramsey began talking about the idea of desensitizing, there is the offering of thoughts and prayers that people will react to. There is the idea of calls for common sense gun control. There is the demonization of a huge umbrella term of mental health. Um, then there is the dismissal, as you mentioned, of same-race crimes and not thinking hate crimes. And I, I wonder, I mean, and it's, it's akin to thinking, oh, you must have to boil the ocean in order to get anything done. But there are incremental things. But I, I do want to ask you from your, um, your background, in law enforcement in particular, Michael Fanone, you know, there is, for lack of a better term, there, there's a stereotype that often emerges from a pattern of people involved in mass shootings. And when somebody does not fit the bill or somebody is not um, a a twin to that stereotype, is there a way to ever be predictive of how and who might be susceptible to committing these crimes?
13: I think overall the answer to that question is no. Um, I mean, those stereotypical, um, you know, descriptors that Mm -hmm. that we typically utilize surrounding mass shooters, um, you know, that's all about the politicization of... You know, these types of events, you know, certain political groups may want to use um, one specific, you know, set of physical description or descriptors for for their own purposes um, versus another. Uh, But I mean, ultimately, uh, anybody uh, could be a perpetrator in, in one of these types of crimes. And one of the things I do want to talk about when we're talking about solutions is uh, one of the common denominators that I've seen as a law enforcement officer across the board in these types of issues. Whether you're dealing with uh, the inner city mass shootings that I dealt with, um, you know, almost on a weekly basis as an inner city cop for 20 years, the ones that Charles Ramsey referenced himself, uh, or the situations that we more uh, commonly view as a mass shooting which are events like we saw in california over they the get past. the national coverage exactly certainly.
10: Right.
13: it's community involvement um, you know oftentimes you see these situations play out and in the weeks the days or weeks afterwards there's individuals in that person the perpetrator of life who said well i saw this behavior or i i was concerned about this individual but i didn't come forward and i didn't say anything it's the same as with the inner city shootings and yeah, I knew my 15-year-old uh, grandson or son was in possession of a firearm, and he or she should not have been. Uh, but I didn't say anything. Um, you know, ultimately, it's not just law enforcement, it's not just the legislator, it's not just you know the criminal justice system that needs to take responsibility and ownership. We, as a country, have to decide that you know we've had enough of these incidents. Mm-hmm.
10: You know, it's an important point because really, if everywhere is a front line, then we're all stakeholders. Selfishly, in a scared way, we all become those stakeholders and need to be involved. We also have, everyone, some newly obtained surveillance video of the moment that a young hero actually stopped a gunman from shooting up a second dance studio in Monterey Park, saving, frankly, an untold number of lives. We'll bring you to that and speak with the mayor of Monterey Park right after this. We have new details tonight on the horrific massacre in Monterey Park, California. Officials revealing the suspect fired 42 rounds in the Saturday night shooting that left 11 people dead. The 72-year-old suspect had an arrest in 1990 for unlawful possession of a firearm. And police say they found hundreds of rounds of ammunition as well as homemade firearm suppressors in his home. While authorities are still trying to, and unable at this point, to point to a direct motive for the killings, the D.A. tells CNN tonight the attack appears to have been targeted.
4: He has been part of that community. He met his ex-wife there. So there is certainly the appearance that this was very targeted.
10: And we're getting footage of the moments when the gunman was disarmed in a second location you're seeing to your screen. The heroic effort led by a 26-year-old, Brandon Say, saving more lives from being lost. Joining me now, the mayor of Monterey Park, California, Mayor Henry Lowe. Thank you for joining us here this evening, Mayor. You know, the nation is watching California with extraordinary interest and sadness at the tragedies that are unfolding, and I do mean tragedies, and the loss of life in Monterey Park. Tell me, how is your community grappling with this now?
14: Thank you so much, Laura. And first, let me also say my heart goes out to the community of Half Moon Bay um, because I know exactly what they're going through. Um, as I was watching the press conference, it was an uncomfortable and eerie deja vu. And I can imagine that in their community, like in Monterey Park, the feelings are of disbelief of uh, why is this happening in our community and a shock and just sadness over a tragedy of loss of life and um, more violence. Um, In the community like ours, which is very safe, Park is a safe community. It's a community uh, where families uh, move to raise their children because we have good schools, great restaurants and businesses. And this weekend, especially because uh, it was our Lunar New Year festival. It was the beginning of the Lunar New Year weekend celebration. And so... Uh, people are just in disbelief and in sh- shock and just feeling very numb. And, and, and I think that's what, what all of us are feeling right now. Um, and again, my heart just goes out to half moon bay. I know what is in store for them you know, in the preceding next few days.
10: Yeah, I mean, it's just it is surreal to think about. I'm sorry, from your perspective in the community and just looking at the timeline of how all this transpired in Monterey Park. I mean, we're talking about a number of hours. It was an overnight um, from 1030 at night to the next morning of the fear of whether this person was going to attack again in some way, I'm sure you've got him not being apprehended, not even apprehended, but um, not located until Sunday morning. It's a huge stretch of time, a 12-hour window there. As you're approaching this now, the idea that this suspect has is dead, is there a sense of what this community would need to even feel safe?
14: Absolutely, and I think this... Is- we will have to embark on that long road of recovery that is ahead of us. Uh, You know, tomorrow uh, we will be holding a community vigil at 5.30 in front of City Hall. Um, We've uh, opened uh, since yesterday a crisis uh, trauma center uh, to help not just the victims and their families, but anyone in our community who just feels a sense of loss and and Mm. tragedy. Uh, to just cope with all of this. Um, yeah. And we've also established a memorial in front of city hall. There's also a memorial in front of the um, dance hall. I paid a visit to it uh, today, you um, know, daytime. And, you know, I, 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 was, I was moved. I was moved to tears when I was looking at the flowers because mm. um, I know they're slowly um, releasing the names of the victims, at least two of the victims, and they were seniors. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking to myself, Again, you know, part of the tradition of Lunar New Year is that you come home to your family uh, to have that first meal. And on the day of the the shooting, um, which was Lunar New Year, I had to tell my mom, I said, I'm sorry, mom, you probably know what's happening, um, but I won't be able to come home. I don't know when I'll come home uh, because we were just monitoring because we were concerned about the safety of our community while this person was at large.
10: Mayor Lowe, I mean, just thinking about and those who are not ever going to return is just a tragedy. Thank you so much for sharing what's happening. And we will continue to cover what's happening in Monterey Park and in California more broadly and sadly, Mayor, across this nation. Thank you. Thank you. The attorney for the family of Tyree Nichols alleges he was beaten like a human pinata. That's their words. After a traffic stop in Memphis. Now, five officers have been fired before the video has even been made public. We have details next. The family of a 29 year old black man today seeing video of their loved one, Tyree Nichols, who died after a traffic stop, and what the family's attorneys allege was a horrific beating. Five black officers fired even before video of that arrest has been publicly released. And we're learning tonight, two members of the Memphis Fire Department were also fired. CNN's Nick Valencia is here with much more. Nick, Tyree Nichols' family was able to watch the video of his arrest for the very first time today. What are you learning?
9: Laura, they say the video was so violent that Tyree Nichols' mother had uh, problems, had trouble getting through the first minute of that video. The family attorney, Ben Crump, equating it to the 1991 beating of Rodney King. The family and their attorneys say that officers beat Tyree Nichols for three minutes, and they say that at some point during the video, you could hear Nichols ask police officers, what did I do?
0: Unadulterated, unabashed non-stop beating of this young boy for three minutes.
15: I just think about when he, he said, I'm just trying to go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At what point does the humanity come in and say, this doesn't seem to be a bad person? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to go home. just want to go home. I just want to come home. The last words, on the video he's only about 80 to 100 yards from his house and he calls for his mom three times mom (laughs) he's called for his mom and so where's the humanity
9: Mother's pain is just uh, very difficult to watch. The Nichols family said that they were careful to not give too many details about what they saw in the video because there is still an active investigation, not just with the TBI, Tennessee Bureau Investigation, U.S. Attorney's Office, but also the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. But Nichols' stepfather did take a moment to address what police say uh, was Nichols fleeing on foot Uh, Nichols' stepfather saying that after watching the video, it was clear to him that his son wasn't fleeing because he had something to hide, but rather because he was scared for his life. He said the public will see that once the video is released. The district attorney's office, Laura, telling me that the video will be released either sometime later this week or sometime next week. Meanwhile, those five officers you mentioned have been terminated with the police chief saying that the incident, the nature of the incident was egregious. And very quickly here, we did learn earlier this evening that shortly after the murder of George Floyd. The Memphis Police Department took steps to amend its duty to intervene, uh, saying that uh, an officer, if they witness another officer uh, commit dangerous or criminal conduct or abuse, they shall take reasonable action to intervene. The district attorney's office telling me that they are currently considering charges against these five officers involved in the arrest. And if any uh, charges are leveled against these officers, they could come uh, sometime this week. Laura? Laura?
10: Nick Valencia, thank you so much. It's difficult to to watch that mother react to what we just have heard. Michael Fanone and Charles Ramsey are back with us, along with former Maryland State Police Officer Neil Franklin. Gentlemen, we have a lot to talk about next. Five black police officers fired. Two members of the Memphis Fire Department also fired in the wake of the death of Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop. I want to bring in CNN law enforcement analyst Michael Fanone, also here, former Maryland State police officer Neil Franklin, and CNN senior law enforcement analyst Charles Ramsey. What we heard from them today, I'll begin with you, Neil, on this. We heard from Tyree's mother. We heard from Ben Crump. We heard from the attorney in this particular case. And I want you to listen for a moment to what the stepfather had to say about Tyree and how he thinks he felt.
16: My son, I know everybody say they, mothers say they had a good son. Everybody's son is good. But my son, he actually was a good boy.
12: Our son ran because he was scared for his life. He did not run because he was trying to get rid of no drugs, no guns, no any of that. He ran because he was scared for his life. And when you see the video, you will see why he was scared for his life.
10: Now, we have not seen this video, but you see and hear from the parents, understanding the narratives are often created around the person who is victimized, around the person who has... Um, in this case past i'm wondering from your perspective just hearing about the fact that you have five officers who were fired before we even seen this video what goes through your mind well
8: first of all the the importance of video even though we haven't seen it we know that it it's critical in this case uh it's no doubt in my mind we are starting to see more and more video of officers using excessive force on people and people dying in police custody, that's why people are afraid. That's why mainly young black and brown people are afraid of of interacting with the police. Um, I know Chief Chief Davis. Uh, she's a member of Noble. I'm a member of Noble. She was a former past president. I am not surprised that they have been terminated because I know how she would respond to such uh, a a horrible use of force, mm. a three-minute beating is what we're hearing um, that took place on, on this young man. So young people are seeing these videos. They're on YouTube. They're on many uh, media platforms out there. And because video is so available today on cell phones and body cams, we're starting to see what people have been telling us for a very, very long time what black people have been telling us for a very, very long time about their interactions with the police.
10: I want to bring you in here, Charles Ramsey, because you and I covered extensively the trial of one Derek Chauvin. And in our conversations around the killing of George Floyd, we spoke about the fact that this, that trial, that guilty verdict, that jury hearing and the whole nation and world hearing about the training and excessive force and the duty of care that was owed, to Mr. Floyd. You mentioned then that that would be a jumping off point for changing a lot in terms of how law enforcement operated and their training. Hearing that just a month after that trial and the killing of George Floyd in particular, that they changed the policy in Memphis to account for the duty to render aid or to essentially identify something happening that's it's wrong and intervene in some way, what is your reaction knowing that that policy was in place and they were fired?
12: Well, I mean, apparently the officers uh, did not follow the policy clearly. Now I haven't seen the video, none of us have seen the video, but I too know uh, Chief Davis. And for her to take that strong action tells me, and she has seen the video, that their actions were way out out of policy, not inconsistent with training. Uh, The likelihood of criminal charges is probably very high and she was able to take decisive action. Now, um, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. There are some uh, departments where because of the collective bargaining agreement, a chief can't take that kind of action that quickly. Uh, but fortunately, she's able to take direct action, uh, which I think goes a long way uh, to show that you know, she is a transformational type of leader. But I do need to see the video to know exactly what took place. I understand the emotion of family and attorneys and all that sort of thing. But the fact that Chief Davis took that kind of uh, action really uh, tells me that it probably is a pretty horrific uh, video.
10: I was struck in my meeting with that chief um, about how determined she, in fact, was to try to, I mean, in a separate context than this, obviously, to try to, in many ways, Michael, I want to bring you in here, talk about the credibility of officers and the integrity of the profession more broadly. Um, and I, I know when we talked about the Derek Chauvin trial and we talked about other instances, people often think about the racial dynamic. It's a white officer attacking a black man. An unarmed black man has been the most prolific and um, prevalent narrative that has been out there. These are five black officers. I don't know the race of the, of the people from the fire department. But the idea of blue trumping race, the idea these are officers in the law having been fired. Um, What is your reaction?
13: Well, I don't know Chief Davis, um, but I would certainly defer to uh, my former Chief Ramsey um, with regards to her credibility uh, in decision making like this. That being said, um, I've seen police officers who were fired for political reasons. I've seen police officers who are disciplined for political reasons. So that also can happen as well not saying that's what happened in this case. Again, I think it's important that we see the video, um, but it certainly speaks strongly um, considering the fact that uh, the victim in this case is deceased uh, as a result of injuries that he sustained at the hands of uh, five police officers. Um, And so I think that in and of itself is, is significant.
10: You know, I understand the, the need to reserve judgment and see the video, but three minutes, as described, three minutes of beating someone, they call fights in a fraction of that time. I'll be right back. Well, breaking news, another mass shooting in California, this time in Half Moon Bay, about 28 miles south of San Francisco. Seven people killed at multiple locations. At least one other person is critically injured. A suspect is in custody, and San Mateo County Sheriff's Office had identified him as 67-year-old Chun Li Zhao, a Half Moon Bay resident who they believe acted alone. The motive is still unclear. I want to bring in CNN's Camilla Bernal for the very latest. Camilla, I mean, it's hard to believe we're talking about another shooting in California,
6: this time in Half Moon Bay. What can you tell us? So we know that it is one shooter who went to multiple locations. This happened at around 2.22 local time this afternoon. And we were told that the suspect went to the first location and shot Five people, four of them killed at that location, one of them critically injured. Then he went to another location about a mile apart and he killed another three people. Now, we have been told that this was a mushroom farm. Authorities are calling it a nursery. In general, it is an agricultural area and police had not made an arrest until about 4 30 in the afternoon. That's when this suspect was spotted at the sheriff's substance. Now, we know that it was a plainclothes officer who saw this suspect, who saw the car that they were looking for. And I was speaking to my colleague, Josh Campbell, who pointed out this was not the massive SWAT team operation that we saw in Southern California. This was an officer who you see there wearing a tie and taking this man down and arresting him. Josh Campbell also pointing out that they did not seek cover. They were not hiding behind cars in Instead, they thought that this was an arrest that was safe enough to make at the moment. We know that he was taken into custody. They recovered a semi-automatic handgun after this arrest. We know he is cooperating with authorities. The DA's team is interviewing that suspect at the moment. Uh, but we know he acted alone. Authorities saying there is no threat to the community, yet they have not given us a motive. They are working on it, but so far they say they do not know why this happened. Laura. Do you know anything about
10: him in particular? We don't have the motive yet. We have his age, there's the picture. Anything we know about
6: him in particular? So we know he is a Half Moon Bay resident, and authorities believe that he was an employee at one of these nurseries. We also know, according to authorities, that they believe that the people he killed were also employees in this area. Again, 67-year-old resident of Half Moon Bay. He is in custody. Authorities are speaking to him at the moment, so hopefully we get more clarity on why he did this. Camilla thank you
10: so much. I want to bring in now Assemblymember Mark Berman of California's 23rd District. Assemblyman, I mean, such a tragedy. And it's unbelievable to think about the pacing of such tragedies. But how is your community grappling with this tonight?
17: Laura, thank you for having me. There's there's shock. There's shock and disbelief uh, that this happened in, in Half Moon Bay in such an idyllic uh, part of San Mateo County of Northern california and i 'll tell you uh, at two twenty two or just before two hundred and twenty two I was on the steps of the California State Capitol with my colleagues for a vigil for the Monterey Park victims and Then I made my way over to my office and and I see on social media that there was that there was a mass shooting in my district and and so it is happening far too often, and communities are are scared. Um, and we're going to do everything that we can to support them, uh, you know, t- tonight and, and in the days, weeks and, and months ahead.
10: No one ever thinks it's going to happen in their hometown. But with the rise and the prevalence of gun violence in this country, has your community developed in, or the law enforcement collectively? Had there been training or a plan of some case and kind in case this were to happen? Have you had to adjust to that cold reality?
17: Yes, uh, and and we're very fortunate. San Mateo County is one of the best-run counties in the state, uh, and and they have, as as we saw in the video, uh, you know, a remarkably professional sheriff's department that covers Half Moon Bay and covers the coast side uh, of San Mateo County, um, and and they were able to apprehend the suspect quickly and without any more death uh, to anyone else. Um, but for for you know, it, it, it's cr- I had a couple of uh, school classes up in the Capitol last year. And when I asked them, what's the one thing that you'd like to change in your community, there were two different groups. And the first group, these were fourth grade students, 10 year olds, and the first group, the first thing they said was no more shootings in schools. Mm. The second group, the third thing they said was no more shootings in schools. That I wasn't th- dreaming of that nightmare when I was a 10 year old. Uh, and, and so it unfortunately has. Uh, really permeated every every aspect of society and and we need to do more uh, to protect our communities
10: i mean you talk about children i I have a 10 year old and an eight year old and to know that part of their school day at some part during the year has to entail having what we used to have as a fire drill they have to have active shooter training or a kind of response it really is unnerving to say the very least but they're also i understand children at the scene this was not at a school what do you know about the presence of children at this shooting scene?
17: Yeah, there's, it, it was farm worker housing. Uh, and, and there are a lot of we have a lot of farming and agriculture on the coast uh, and, and farm worker housing where the whole family lives. And one or two people of the family maybe work uh, on the farm, but but everyone else, including children, live there. And so it's tragic. It's tragic to think, uh, you know, that, that and we're still learning details uh, about the victims, but that we can only assume that mothers and fathers and sons and daughters were, were killed far too soon. Um, and and the, the fact that their own families were nearby. It uh, just makes it that much worse. So it's it's really a senseless gun violence that we have uh, in in uh, the United States that's so different from anywhere else in the in the country.
10: Do you happen to know why they believe this was targeted? I mean, we don't have the motive or this precise motive, but any any indication as to why they believe it was targeted?
17: I, I don't know yet, to be honest. I'm sure that information will come out soon, but um, but I don't know.
10: We'll have to see what's happening as, as this all unfolds, Assemblyman. I mean, just the thinking about the, as you said, being on the Capitol, you know, just honoring as a vigil the loss of life in another community, only to have it happen on your front door. Thank you so much tonight. We're thinking of your community.
17: Thanks so much, Laura.
10: I want to bring in former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and retired LAPD Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey is with us here as well. You know, a a lot happening as we get the information, and and it truly is unfolding. I want to begin with you, Sergeant Dorsey, because you've got two mass shootings, frankly, days apart, in California. Monterey Park was one, now Half Moon Bay. Um, Why has this become so common and do you think, as my um, our colleague earlier spoke about, Charles Ramsey, that there is a fear that people may become desensitized to what's been happening?
16: I think we're already there. And I, I wonder if in the instance of this shooting in Half Moon Bay, if this is like a copycat. I mean, it, obviously there was a lot of press about... What happened here in Monterey, California? It was a an Asian man who victimized um, other Asians, and now we have something very similar in Northern California. Is this someone who's been stewing and brewing and had angst over an issue and decided, you know what, I think I'm going to do that very thing that we just heard about in Southern California. Sometimes, you know, I know that there's a reason why the news puts information out there, but I wonder if we really need to know every single thing that occurs.
10: That's an important point. And our colleague of mine, Shen Wu, earlier was just speaking about this, Andrew, the idea of not immediately discounting the possibility of hate crime simply because the person is of the same race of some of the victims. There could be the same type of animus, gender-wise or otherwise, race-wise and beyond, that can't be discounted. But to Sergeant Dorsey's point, um, the availability of information, the need for transparency, at least in the consuming, you know, um, court of public opinion. Do you think that that can at times weigh against the ability to stop crimes like this?
4: You know, that's hard to say, Laura. It's, it's totally understandable that communities are looking for answers to questions like what motivated this person to commit this horrible act, it's a way of understanding uh, or assessing future danger. is there is there something else out there that we should be worried about? Uh, we want to kind of be able to categorize these things in our own mind and kind of uh, put them into a, a particular or uh, box in terms of the way that we understand them. And so the thirst for information to understand things like motive and intent uh, is is really, uh, never ending. However, our, that leads to the sort of coverage that we're doing right now, that we did over the weekend, that we always do around these events. That that could, in fact, serve to draw more attention to these individuals and to their methods and their equipment and their guns and everything else. So, it's really hard. We're uh, we're in a very tough spot in terms of trying to bring people the information they reasonably seek, uh, but also trying to assess whether or not that's ultimately harmful. It's. Um, I I think it's the answer to that question is way beyond me.
10: It's hard to endorse it to that point. I mean, we've, in mass shootings in the past, remember the Boston um, bombers and beyond, there was a conversation around, um, even should we as media mention and talk about the person who's committed the crime as opposed to focusing on the victim so as to minimize the potential impact. But I do wonder from your legal, I mean, your law enforcement background in particular, you know, in the case of what's happened in, um, in Half Moon Bay, you have a living suspect. What does the investigation look like from here in terms of what you're looking for to try to understand or identify that motive? What are the things you're looking most for? How does that investigation expand with an eye towards prosecution, of course?
16: One would hope that he would be cooperative. I mean, you it- you reported that he was taken into custody at a police station. And so it sounds like maybe he went there to turn himself in. And so uh, he can uh, provide a lot of information as to the why. Uh, that's what everybody wants to know. And and with that information, perhaps we can avoid uh, future instances. What I want to encourage everyone to do going forward is be your own best uh, advocate and protector, if you will, because The horse is out of the barn. The guns are out there. People are acting on impulses. And so, you know, it's a matter of really if you see something, if you know something, if you feel something about a person, uh, you need to say something uh, in an effort to maybe avert uh, these kinds of instances happening over and over and over.
10: We have limited time, Andrew, but I wonder from your perspective for a case like Monterey Park where you're trying to unpack and the suspect is dead. How do you try to get the answers? What are your investigative tactics from this point?
4: It's basics, Laura. You gotta talk to friends, neighbors, family members, coworkers, anybody who knew him to try to pull together a picture of the sorts of things that he said to other people, maybe complaints that he had, stories that he told. And then you want his own writings, whether it's on social media or on emails or texts to friends. You've got to do the forensics on all those electronics devices that we know that we see they seized from his residence. Uh, yesterday. So there's a lot of work uh, for investigators to do here, and hopefully that'll enable them to stitch together an understanding of uh, what made this guy
10: tick. I mean, there are so many answers the families are looking for to have lost their loved ones, and we're still waiting for the identities of those who were killed in Monterey Park and also in Half Moon Bay. Thank you to both of you. 38 Americans dead in mass shootings in just the first three weeks of this year. We're only three weeks in to this year. So what will it take to stop the killings of people across this country? The mass shootings just don't stop. Police confirming seven people were killed just tonight in the second mass shooting in California in just a matter of days. And this is a state that actually has an assault-style weapons ban. So why does this keep happening? I want to bring in CNN contributor Stephen Gutowski. He's a gun safety instructor and firearms reporter for TheReload.com. Also, Jennifer Masia, senior news writer at The Trace. You know, the question that everyone's asking, in addition to trying to understand motives, and I think it's a sort of a human nature to try to understand why, um, not looking for a justification, but what would bring someone or motivate them to do something like this. But but Stephen, you say that we're seeing actually a, a cluster of shootings. What causes
3: that? Well, I think sometimes, you know, it could be caused by the copycat sort of effect where shooters see other people carrying out these attacks and um, feel disaffected themselves and then decide this is something they can do. And there's sort of a, um, a riot effect that some people call it where the bar gets lowered the more people see other, other people do it. Of course, it's also possible that these are not directly connected at all. And it's just uh, incidents that happen that seem similar in some ways, but aren't directly connected.
10: I mean, it, it very well could be purely coincidence. We, are see, we don't know of any connection whatsoever, Jennifer, between these two mass shootings. And, and sadly, we've got so many shootings across the country that trying to find those common threads is a fool's errand. Um, and yet some believe that legislative initiatives trying to stop this alone can feel like an exercise in futility because you've got California in particular that has, um, you know, very strict gun laws and even an assault weapons ban. How does that strike you that it's happening there in particular? Does it lead you to believe that, frankly, then nowhere is safe?
7: Well, um, the truth is not all mass shooters display warning signs that rise to the level of a gun ban. There are very specific things that you need to do. Um, you have to have an involuntary mental health commitment or a felony that carries a sentence of a year or more, a domestic violence conviction, um, but you, know, you still can own guns if your behavior doesn't rise to the level where you know, a family or a police officer uh, invokes a red flag law on you. Um, the truth is there are 400 million guns in circulation in the United States. Even the strongest gun laws are going to have limited effect when there are already so many guns out there.
10: I mean, it's a very important point she raises, um, Stephen, on the idea of, well, one, not having necessarily the advanced warning or those so-called red flags or maybe even being known to law enforcement we often hear about. But the number of guns in circulation, does this make the idea of shootings sadly and cruelly inevitable?
3: Well, I don't know if it makes it inevitable because we didn't always have this issue of of mass shootings being as common as they are today in this country and we had looser gun laws going back in history we used to be able to buy a machine gun through the mail and have it delivered to your door uh, and now uh, in a state like california which has the absolute strictest gun laws in the country you're still having these events occur uh, regardless of that and so uh you know i don't know that gun laws are going to be the only solution or the 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 magic trick to fix this. Um, There's certainly things you can do to make sure these don't happen as frequently, including following up on uh, issues where these suspects do run into police or do have events that could trigger charges or involuntary commitments that lead to gun bans. Uh, I know the Monterey uh, shooter apparently had a charge for illegal gun possession in his past. I'm sure we'll hear more about both of these suspects in the near future, and there may be more of those sorts of incidents that have followed through on, could have led to a lifetime gun ban. And
10: Jennifer, you know, when we talk about this, and I, I, the idea of, and I don't want to suggest that um, legislation is an exercise of utility, nor do I want to suggest that there can be just one panacea to, to create uh, a complete solution to all these things. When you think about all the different facets that must come together um who are you looking to in the sense of the federal congressional legislature or state and local jurisdictions who do you think would have the best ability to try to control
7: or is it a combination okay well california's legislature is democrat dominated and you know they have passed very strong gun laws federal is probably a non-starter, you know, we still, you know, the Democrats cannot overcome a filibuster in the Senate. Um, so, you know, uh, a lot of people have stopped looking at legislation and started looking at on-the-ground solutions. Um, community violence interruption has had success in hot spots, um, but it's not a a coast to coast solution absent a federal system of strong controls like other countries have we are still going to see these shootings pop up even in states with strong gun laws um you know some argue that we need to loosen gun laws so more people can get guns and defend themselves well our gun laws have been significantly loosened over the last 30 years half the states are permitless carry you don't even need a permit or training to carry a gun so why isn't there less Gun violence. Why are more guns in the hands of people not stopping this? Um, In 2021, we had more gun deaths than ever in this country, nearly 49,000. Why is this number going up and not down?
10: These are the questions that we're all grappling with tonight, certainly in communities in California and beyond. I mean, you have so many—you have states like California and Connecticut and Delaware and Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, just to name a few that already have assault weapons bans, and sadly. Not one seems to have been able to escape gun violence more broadly in this country. Stephen, Jennifer, thank you. We'll keep asking the questions. We hope to find the answers. Three members of the Oath Keepers and a fourth person associated with them convicted of seditious conspiracy by a Washington, D.C. jury. We're going to dive into the larger significance of those cases next. Well, we have a verdict today in the latest Oath Keepers trial. Four men convicted of seditious conspiracy in a federal court in Washington, D.C. for plotting to stop the certification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory on January 6th. Now, one of the men, David Marshall, was a part of a formation the prosecutor said was, quote, a battering ram for pushing through the crowd and into the Capitol. The verdict comes amid an ongoing trial of five Proud Boys on separate Seditious conspiracy charges. If any of that sounds familiar, that's because, well, back in November, the Oath Keepers' founders, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, were also found guilty of the rare seditious conspiracy charge. Back with you now I discuss is Michael Fanone, Shan Wu, and Andrew McCabe. We begin with you here, Shan, because the the DOJ's first successes with the Rhodes conviction. Many were wondering if there would ever be a charge that would be successful for something like that, a very rare instance. Did that give some level of affirmation to continue with the new case, which I note was separated because of space considerations of trying them all together?
0: I think it did. I mean, a lot of times prosecutors actually, we've both been prosecutors, they're very concerned about the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, but sometimes a little bit of code for being a little bit timid. And this is not a charge which has been used very much, uh, thankfully, because it doesn't happen that much in the country. And honestly, I think some of the concern was saying that this is a really rare charge, making it really difficult. Just because it's rare, it doesn't necessarily mean it's difficult. I mean, I tried cases in D.C. for over a decade. I have a lot of confidence that D.C. juries can see their way clearer in this kind of case. And I think that's been proven.
10: It's true. Thinking about the way in which, Andrew, I want to bring you in here, um, this was a D.C. jury and this was after already having the first Oath Keepers trial. But there was a distinction between that set and this one, the first set of defendants in the Oath Keepers trial. Um, you, had a, you had a bit of a, a patchwork of a mixed bag of convictions, but they were considered more of the organizers, the, the ringleaders, so to speak. These other four were more of the so-called foot soldiers, not the organizers as they the prior ones were what does that tell you about the idea of a doj successful conviction for those who were following orders as well
4: you know laura <clears throat> excuse me it's a really interesting discrepancy between the two results right it's it seemed in the first oath keepers trial uh, the results that the jury really reserved those convictions for seditious conspiracy for the highest level kind of organizers and planners, you'll remember that Rhodes never even entered the Capitol, didn't, wasn't even on the grounds of the Capitol that day, but nevertheless took the conviction for seditious conspiracy. This jury, of course, saw it somewhat differently. They didn't have a problem uh, convicting these defendants of seditious conspiracy, even though they were admittedly lower-level folks, the muscle, the guys who, uh, according to prosecutors, you know, applied brute force to the plans of trying to stop the uh, certification of the election. So it's just every jury's a little bit different. The perspectives, the way they weigh the evidence, the way they apply it uh, uh, to the law is always. Uh, A little bit different. And I think that in the second trial, the one that uh, we got a verdict on today, it's possible that the government kind of retooled their presentation of that evidence, uh, having had the experience of the first Oath Keepers trial a few months ago. So it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it was. But uh, clearly, these two juries saw the the um, the implications of that charge uh, somewhat differently.
10: And Michael, I mean, for the audience as well, there is also a Proud Boys trial happening as well. So keeping these different charges straight and who's getting charged with what, but it all has the connective tissue of what happened on January 6th. And I'm wondering what your personal reaction has been to watching not only the trials unfold, but to have secured convictions.
8: Yeah, I mean,
13: excuse me, to me, I see these uh, almost as a litmus test, you know, you had the first trial with Stuart Rhodes and, and some of the higher level individuals, and, and now we're kind of working our way down. My assumption would be that um, you know if the evidence is the same against these, the Proud Boys uh, and their membership uh, as it was against the Oath Keepers, that the result is going to be the same. Uh, and it just speaks to um, at least some of the individuals that participated in the January 6th insurrection and the level of pre-planning and organization uh, that those groups had in place uh, for the events of that day.
10: It is interesting. I'm looking at this and, you know, originally thinking about the initial defense was, well, Trump made me do X, Y, and Z, or the thought was, hey, are they going to only be able to pinpoint if it was, you know, sort of the, the biggest fish in the pond? And now you see the distancing of, Either Stuart Rhodes being on site, the idea of those who are so-called foot soldiers, and the juries being convinced nonetheless. There's still a lot more to unpack. And obviously, you know, although you do have some similarities, they still have a lot to prove for all the cases that might follow as well. Thank you to all of you. I appreciate it. Conviction today on all counts for the January 6th rioter who was photographed with his feet on then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's desk, Richard Barnett of Arkansas. He faced eight charges, including entering and remaining in a restricted area with a deadly or dangerous weapon and obstructing an official proceeding. Now, court documents show that Barnett had a stun gun while inside Pelosi's office. Now, though he testified, he believed that stun gun did not actually work. Barnett's lawyer says they do plan to appeal and the sentencing is set for this coming May. He faces up to 20 years in prison for the top charge of obstructing an official proceeding. Now, guess who's invited to the White House tomorrow? Well, none other than Congressman George Santos. We'll tell you why next. Well, the George Santos lies. well, they keep coming. And still, he is a congressman. And as such, he was invited to the White House tomorrow for a reception for new members. He actually has two committee assignments and even... A security clearance. Former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger tells CNN that members of Congress don't need a background check to get the security clearance. He says, quote, your election is constitutionally your clearance. You just sign a sheet that you understand once. I now CNN political commentator Paul Magala, CNN senior or senior contributor to Axios Margaret Taleb, and former RNC communications director Doug High as well. First of all, it might be stunning to many people, Margaret, that there's not this requirement of extensive background checks once you are elected, because that would be an additional qualification that the Constitution does not actually have. Um, but I remember having a security clearance, and they go through everything in DOJ, and yet you can see classified docs and security clearance as a member of Congress? Is that... Surprising? Uh, n- no. I mean, look, th- to be a member of the House of
2: Representatives is about as close as you can be to just being an ordinary citizen and being elected to federal office. And that's what being elected to the House is about. Now you get assigned to committees, and some of those committees are more sensitive than others. Uh, George Santos doesn't actually need to be assigned to any committee, but the Republican leadership has chosen uh, to give him committee assignments. And that's where the rub is. You know, you're entrusted by the people who voted for you. Um, which is okay unless you're a pathological liar. And then there's not
10: really any recourse except for the ballot two years later. And that's the situation that we're in. That part, the liar part. What do you say to the fact that this is happening right now? And of course, you know, there is not the recourse.
18: That, well, there, there was an election. And, and Adam Kinzinger says there's no background check the way you and I, when we were in the government, right. I was in the White House, I had a security clearance. There is a background check. It's called the election. And the Republican Party, before they put him up, they should have checked him out. Just like, by the way, this man accused in New Mexico, a Republican candidate for the legislature, accused of shooting at the houses of Democratic uh, uh, officials. So they should have checked him out. Frankly, the press should have checked him out. I, I talked to Democratic operatives because I called them and I said, did you not do your job? They had some of this, not all. But, and, and they gave it to journalists in, in New York. Journalists didn't run with it. They said, oh, he's not going to win. So Mm -hmm. people dropped the ball in the Republican Party. They should have vetted this guy. Uh, The press should have vetted him.
10: In fact, Congresswoman Elisa Fodick has been criticized for fundraising or giving sort of a nod to support as well as just one person of the many you have just named. She
18: should have checked him out. That one went to Harvard. Okay, she's not dumb. She's very, very smart. She should have been smart enough to check this guy out before she gave him uh, her endorsement.
10: You think the idea of no one really getting a, a, a sort of a pass here, though, it sounds like it's like a, a collective issue going on. It did not stop SNL from giving him the real treatment, so to speak. Listen to this on a Weekend Update: how they dealt with the Santos issue.
9: You lied about going to NYU. You did. <laughs> you lied about working at Goldman Sachs. No, I filled the Gold Man Sachs. <laughs> you lied about your mom dying in 9/11. I think I said 7/11. No. <laughs> No, you even lied about being Jewish. No, I said I was Jewish, which is honestly icon-ick. Okay. I mean, I said that because my grandparents were in the Holocaust. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, they actually knew Anne Frank. My ancestors was, were the ones that told her, you should be writing this down. <laughs> Hang on, Madonna's calling uh-huh, me. Uh-huh. Hello? Yeah, like a virgin? I remember I
17: was there, I was the virgin. Okay.
9: Okay, love you. See you at home. I just don't understand why Republicans won't condemn you. I mean, they promoted you to two committee assignments. Yeah, of course they did, Colin. I'm a team player, and the sport is lies. At least mine are fun. Meanwhile, Marjorie Taylor Greene's over here saying 9-11 didn't happen. I just said it happened to me.
10: (laughs) I mean, Doug, the idea of this is obviously getting spoofed from SNL, but they're making a larger statement of how the perception of the Republican Party may shift because of people like Santos. Do you agree?
5: I don't think it changes because of Santos. I think it changes because of one of the people we mentioned, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, and others that we've focused on in the past couple weeks. Um, Santos is such an anomaly. I don't think that he stains the party um, in any real way. And sure, some Republicans have called on him to step down. Some haven't. The reality is every Republican call, can call on him to resign and he won't resign. So it doesn't have any force. We can applaud and say they did the right thing. It ultimately doesn't matter until members, whether they're Republican or Democrat, uh, offer some kind of a resolution for expulsion. And then you get to the further um, high hurdle. But also to say real quick, you know, on the question of of vetting, it's not just members of Congress. You can be on the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee and not be vetted. You don't have to be approved or, or have any real background check. That's how life changes when you're a member. But so there
18: this, shouldn't be. I mean, this is a of course <laughs> thing. I don't want the executive branch passing judgment on what the legislature <laughs> can see. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that's right.
5: But it's the do press. Wait, do
10: you really think it's right? Yes. But staff does.
5: So if you're a member, yes. membership has privileges. That's
10: right. Explain a little more, though, because that might be counterintuitive to people thinking, OK, the document is such a sensitive nature as to have a skiff, for example. And I would think that most people would probably assume that there had to be something to allow the person to have a kind of background check to know that you are who you say you are, or that you're able to have it, but that so that's surprising that that wouldn't be the case. They're
18: constitutional officers now. If they release that classified information, they can be prosecuted just like yes. you and I, and that, that's good too. But I, I don't think you want a country where the executive dominates. I mean, our founders wanted the the, but it the balance on some there.
2: Presumption. That you're an honest broker. I mean, it it relies on that basic contract with the voter that you're voting for the person you thought you were voting for and that you're trustworthy on some essential level. You may be political. You may make decisions that are more political than policy based. That's all within the realm of normal politics. But if you make up everything about yourself, how can you be trusted with anything? And so I think that puts this you're right. He's an anomaly, but it puts his case in a different category. It makes all these choices about committee assignments
10: or what could the next two years be like? Um, it puts different stakes on all yeah. of that. Could there be some oversight? I mean, just, I want you to finish the point, but the idea, obviously, executive branch is the, you know, org chart. You've got the DOJ, you've got the FBI, et cetera. But the idea of there being some level of oversight within the oversight function of Congress, um, is that so bizarre? I mean, you have, there's is, I, I remember not too long ago, a conversation around, you know, wanting to see tax returns because of the, a thought of what it might mean to be, and that's obvious checks and balance of a different branch of government, but the idea of wanting to know whether somebody is susceptible. If you're the president of the United States, couldn't Congress or ought Congress not to look at these issues internally?
5: Uh, sure. And they do. We have the House Ethics Committee and we also have the Office of Congressional Ethics, but these things take a lot of time. You know, it, it will not be a quick process um, for Santos. And so any Republican, any Democrat can offer a motion, a motion to um, expel them from Congress. The reality is, it takes two thirds of Congress to do that. And the last two times it happened, uh, the members of Congress had to be convicted of bribery before that vote happened. And not he's, accused. He's not on
2: the cusp of happening. Right. In yeah. this but case. I,
5: I do think he damages a Republican brand, Doug. This is where we disagree.
18: Everybody in America, I mean, pe- people get this story and they're following this story. Everybody knows who he is. The preposterous things he said, and that he's a Republican, and that's going to damage their
5: brand unless they get rid of him. I think we have more problem actors to worry about than than the guy who's now on Saturday Night Live. But, yeah. Well, the
10: RNC has a big meeting this week, right, to select their next chairman. Will this, will the person's position impact um, what they do?
5: Not at all. Not at all
10: full stop. He's like, no, actually, no, Laura, I will not. Well, that's saying Why something in and of itself, though.
18: who at the Republican Congressional Committee, National Republican, sure, who but, vetted but, this guy? Who no. asked him to run? Surely there's somebody better. Oh, and maybe uh, nobody uh, uh, asked him to run, and he just New ran York. and
5: won. But you know how this works. When once, you get, once you're the nominee, the party leaders, whether that's the majority leader, the minority leader, they go barnstorming for candidates. And they basically say, OK, I'm in Waco. Who's our candidate here? They do the breakfast. They get on a plane. They go to Tucson. Who's our candidate here? Then they go to Phoenix. And they don't know yeah, who any of these when people When Republicans
18: are. nominated David Duke in Louisiana, George Bush Sr. disavowed him. He didn't care that he was a Republican nominee. He said, I won't have him in my party. We that knew was who character. David Duke was. That was character.
5: very different, very different case there. We knew who he was. Mm-hmm.
10: Well, it seems to me there are some issues to work out here, everyone. <laughs> and everyone, stand by. Where it was just three weeks ago tonight on a separate topic that Buffalo Bills safety Demar Hamlin was seriously injured on the field, but he's already out and about in Buffalo. We're going to take a look at that next. Well, it looks like Buffalo Bill's safety, Jamar Hamlin, is getting stronger every single day. He's posted photos of himself on Twitter and also on Instagram, visiting a mural in his honor that's on display in Buffalo. Hamlin writing on Instagram, quote, creation from the heart is what makes art. The love been getting me through the toughest hours. Can't wait to show how thankful I am. Well, he's come a long way. It was just three weeks ago tonight that his heart stopped in the game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Everyone, thank you for watching. Our coverage continues.
6: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.